many, many studies have indicted an animal-based diet in kidney stones. And in this case, they're not looking at the cholesterol and the animal fat, they're looking at the protein in it. So uh, which foods are, have protein in them? Meat, dairy products, including cheese, uh, eggs. Getting away from animal protein seems to help. So animal protein, suspect number one. Uh, number two, high sodium foods. That's kind of a surprise. But now what foods might help prevent them? And if you already have them, what are the foods that you wanna eat? I would go in exactly the opposite direction. I would go to plant-based foods, beans, vegetables, fruits, whole grains. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us. This is episode 73 of season four, number 268 overall. And today we are going to be talking about kidney stones. Did you know that one out of every 10 people will get one at some point in their life? So the questions today are kind of twofold. What foods can help with them and what foods actually might cause them? And Dr. Neil Barnard is back on the show today with those answers. So what you are going to hear is this week's episode of The Exam Room Live, where we were actually able to take your questions, questions from the exam roomies during the show. And like we always do when we open up the doctor's mailbag, we're going to touch on a lot of other things as well. So we have food and kidney stones, but what about drinks and kidney stones? Does caffeine cause them? And then we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about cheese. We know that regular cheese is addictive, but what about vegan cheese? And are there any plant-based foods that will raise cholesterol? And then we get into a really good discussion about Alzheimer's disease and how many cases could be prevented if people ate a healthier diet. I'm going to get into all of that in just a moment. But before that, I want to say thank you to the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund for helping to raise our health IQs this week and making this episode of The Exam Room possible. The Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund supports organizations like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse. You can visit the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund online right now at GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org. Time now to open the doctor's mailbag and get you the answers to your diet and health questions. And the man with those answers is Dr. Barnard. Dr. Barnard, thanks for being here, my friend. Thank you, Chuck. Great to be with you again. I'm excited that you're here because I didn't realize until uh, the viewer sent in this question, a viewer by the name of Red, asking about kidney stones, just how prevalent they are. I mean, one out of every 10 people, that's millions and millions and millions of people that will get them at some point in their life. And when you've gotten one, when you've had one, you don't forget it. <laughs> they are painful. Um, it's the, the closest a man is ever going to get to childbirth. Um, it's it's tough stuff. But but what you said in the introduction is that there are relationships with food. So I'm glad to start tackling those questions. Well, let's take Red's question right here. What foods are likely to cause kidney stones? OK, um, there are three things that I would like to maybe focus on. The first is animal protein. N many, many studies have indicted an animal based diet 
in kidney stones. And in this case, they're not looking at the cholesterol in the animal fat, they're looking at the protein in it. So uh, which foods are, have protein in them? Meat, dairy products, including cheese, uh, eggs, getting away from animal protein seems to help. So animal protein, suspect number one. Uh, number two, high sodium foods. That's kind of a surprise. We think of sodium as being related to blood pressure, it is, but it also affects calcium balance in the kidney and high sodium diets can cause uh, calcium related stones. Number three, calcium itself. In this case, it's not the calcium in your broccoli. Uh, calcium that's integrated into a food seems not to be the problem. The problem is calcium supplements. Take a calcium pill, it's associated with uh, kidney stones. Now, good news. If you take the pill with food, it is not associated um, with kidney stones. If you take a calcium supplement on an empty stomach, that's when that huge load of calcium comes in, not buffered by anything else. And those are the ones that are associated with kidney stones. All right. And then Sarah obviously has the natural follow-up to this. So we know about which foods can contribute to them, but now what foods might help prevent them? And if you already have them, what are the foods that you want to eat? Yeah, I would go in exactly the opposite direction. I would go to plant-based foods, um, beans, vegetables, fruits, whole grains. Um, and let's say you are a diet in the wool uh, meat person, um, going to the veggie meats, um, even though they taste like meat and so forth, um, they are not associated with kidney stones. So they're perfectly fine substitutes from that standpoint. Pick the ones lowest in fat. Now, this is a question from Mark. And there was somebody in my life who swore that drinking gallons of iced tea every day contributed to their kidney stones. And Mark is wondering whether caffeine can be a culprit in causing kidney stones. Uh, it's a great question. Uh, keep in mind that the vehicle for the caffeine is water. Um, so you're getting... To tell the truth, you're getting hydrated um, at the same time as you do, and it might even have a diuretic effect, so it will cause water to continue to be lost. That's going to help you. Um, that said, there's not really a, a big association one way or another with caffeinated beverages. All right. I want to take a second to say hi to Lenny, who's watching us for the first time, getting a chance to watch the show live all the way in Germany. So hi, Lenny. Thanks for being here. Also, Jacqueline checking in from Philadelphia. Appreciate you spending your lunch hour with us, Jacqueline. Um, Dr. Barnard, here is something you and I have talked about extensively on the show, and you have written about also extensively, and that is the topic of cheese. We know that regular cheese is highly addictive, but Kim is wondering, is vegan cheese as addictive? Um, Plant-based cheeses, they might be greasy and salty, and they're addictive for that reason, but they don't have any casomorphins at all. So you'll get the taste and the mouthfeel. You won't get that, that opioid effect. Uh, let's go back really quickly to kidney stones. Take a question from Maria at noon straight up. Uh, wants to know about diet soda and kidney stones. So we asked about tea. Uh, this is just a, a natural follow-up. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing where overall you're hydrating with these things. So one would think that there wouldn't be any any contribution to it. And my guess is that you wouldn't see a, would not see a significant contribution of diet soda to kidney stones. That said, um, I would raise... The question with anybody who's consuming them, sort of why are we having them? Uh, because the diet sodas are really not, they, they were marketed as, as health food. They haven't turned out to be. By that, I mean, they don't help people to lose weight in any significant way. They don't help people to prevent diabetes. If anything, they make things worse because 
they reinforce a desire for sugary tastes in just the same way as, as sugared sodas do. So um, there's only one beverage that we really do need, and that's plain old water. And, and when we kind of break up with the diet sodas, that's not a bad thing to have done. All right, let's uh, switch topics here and touch on Alzheimer's. We have a question now from Catherine wondering what foods are the best for lowering the risk of Alzheimer's disease? Okay, great question. Uh, foods to avoid, foods to add. The foods to avoid, uh, top of the list is anything that has saturated fat in it. And the reason I'm picking on that is going back to 2003, the Chicago Health and Aging Program showed that suspect number one is a high saturated fat diet. People who eat a lot of these foods um, have probably double to triple the risk of Alzheimer's disease compared to people who avoid them. What are they? Uh, saturated fat group number one, dairy. And it's a surprise, isn't it? But that's why cheese has that buttery mouthfeel, um, very high in saturated fat. And all the, all the dairy products that use whole milk are, are in that same category. Um, group number two, meat and group number three, eggs. Um, those are all saturated fat containing foods. And then finally, uh, coconut and palm oil are unlike other vegetable oils in that they're really high in saturated fat. So I would just steer clear of them completely. Um, good uh, things to add. Uh, researchers in Chicago also discovered that people who ate lots of vegetables and fruits um, had a much uh, more uh, a much slower cognitive decline. In other words, they kept their brain function longer. And if you live in Chicago, to be in the high vegetable and fruit group, you just need two servings a day. Um, people kind of ignore these things. And so my, my point is, even small increases in vegetables and fruits are statistically associated with uh, much better cognitive function. Can you go do better than two a day? Absolutely. Um, keep apples or oranges or bananas or grapes or, or whatever your favorite fruits are, fruits are at home or at work or wherever you would be looking for a snack. Um, and don't forget to include vegetables in your meal planning. In fact, when you're planning a dinner or a lunch or even a breakfast, you might consider, first of all, thinking, is there a vegetable that I can put in here somewhere? And then let the meal planning go around that. Uh, now, here's a question from Tabby. This is an interesting one. I believe that uh, doc, the team Shurzai, Dean and Aisha Shurzai, were on the show uh, not too terribly long ago, and we talked a little bit about this. But there was a study that came out not too terribly long ago that Tabby is referencing here. And Tabby wants to know, is it true that 40% of all Alzheimer's cases could be prevented if people ate a healthier diet? I would be very surprised if that were not the case. Um, I would put the number much higher than that. Um, if you look at all the things you can control, we've just scratched the surface, getting away from the saturated fat, bringing in the vegetables and fruits. Let's say you do that. Fine. We could go a couple steps further. There are trans fats that you will still find in some foods. Avoid those two. They're just like butter. So scratch that. Um, vitamin E seems to be helpful. Not vitamin E in a pill, but vitamin E in an almond or in a walnut or in seeds. You don't need to go very far with these because if you eat too many nuts, there's a lot of calories in there. But just a modest amount, an ounce per day, will give you some vitamin E. In research studies, having a regular amount of vitamin E will reduce the risk of Alzheimer's by about 50%. That's the vitamin E alone. What we're gonna do is we're gonna add these things together. That's all the diet chunk and lace up your sneakers. 
researchers at the University of Illinois brought in a group of people who already had some brain shrinkage, some cognitive impairment. They had them lace up their sneakers and get a brisk walk uh, three times a week. And they showed cognitive improvements and even a reversal of brain shrinkage, particularly in the hip, hippocampus, which is the seat of memory. How much exercise? Uh, do you need to run a marathon? No. Ha uh, about a 40-minute brisk walk, brisk, not a trudge. Um, get your heart pumping a little bit. Three times a week is what was associated with uh, reversal of brain shrinkage. So put those together, healthy diet and exercise. Um, I would be surprised if we couldn't prevent as many as 60 to 80% of cases of Alzheimer's or at least dramatically delay them. That is very promising right there. Very promising. I think that there are a lot of people that like those numbers that are watching this right now. Chuck, let me give you a quick follow-up on that too, by the way. Of course, of course. Now, some people listening to this show will have been tested and the doctor will say, well, you've got the APOE epsilon four allele. You got it from dad, you got it from mom. Um, that's a fancy word for saying that you've got genetic high risk. Um, if you got this gene from one parent, your risk is higher. If you got it from both parents, it's much higher. Researchers have looked at these diet changes, including in people at genetic risk, and found that even they get a strong measure of protection. So I don't want people to think that just because you've got a genetic tendency toward dementia, that it's a foregone conclusion that this is going to happen to you. Um, we need to fight back. I'm going to eat in a, a vegan diet. I'm going to keep fat slow. I'm going to exercise. Can I reduce the risk of me getting type 2 diabetes? Absolutely. Um, and that's true for many, many conditions. So, so uh, we want to put the lifestyle changes to work, no matter what our genetic hand may be. And and that's so important. You know, we hear that that phrase a lot. And I, I, I don't want it to become cliche, but it is so very true is that genes do not have to be our destiny. And that is so, so, so very true. And I also know just based off of just so many emails that have get uh, gotten sent to the exam room inbox, you know, people saying, well, thank you so much. I really did think, you know, because my grandfather, my grandmother had Alzheimer's disease, I'm 100% locked into habit down the road. And what you're saying right now is that that absolutely does not need to be the case. It's important to recognize the human body is a fragile thing. We're vulnerable to things, and sometimes we don't do as well with our diet and lifestyle as we'd like. That's all true. However, let's not undersell what diet can really do. And very often we see diseases that run through families because there is some genetic risk, but there's an awful lot of culinary risk <laughs> that we're handing down taste for foods and specific recipes and food habits and things like that. Um, that sort of look like they're genetic, but they're actually cultural. We can change, and by cultural, I mean the culture of my family. And I can decide to change that if I want to. You know, another condition that a lot of people chalk up to genetics is high cholesterol. And we have a question here from George. George is just getting going on a plant-based diet. He has high cholesterol, but now is wondering whether there are any plant-based foods that could still raise cholesterol. Uh, there are. Uh, there aren't very many. So when you're getting away from animal products, you have done job one for lowering cholesterol. Um, so when you avoid animal products, what are you avoiding? You're avoiding all the cholesterol itself because cholesterol is in meat and dairy products and, and especially eggs. And you're also avoiding the big sources of saturated fat. That's the bad fat we were talking about earlier that stimulates your body 
to make extra cholesterol. Good. So getting away from animal products, job one, that's great. However, let's go into the plant-based world. And I was saying a critical word a minute or two ago about coconut oil and about palm oil. And I mean it. They look like lard at room temperature because they are just a big glob of, of hydrogenated fat um, or saturated fat, I should say. And they will raise your cholesterol like lard will or like butter will. And here's the tragedy. 10 years ago, you didn't see them that much uh, in, in foods. They are used all the time. Uh, manufacturers are now using coconut oil and palm oil to get that mouthfeel, plus a long, long shelf life um, that comes from putting those foods into baked goods or into your pizza dough or your jar of peanut butter or whatever. Read a label. If it's got palm oil on it or coconut oil, throw it out. All right. Uh, here's an interesting question from Vegan in the City. This one comes to us at 1157. Vegan in the City wants to know, why do I feel sick after cutting out processed foods and animal products? Wild. Um, I'm, well, first of all, I'm sorry to hear that you're feeling sick. Um, and I don't know if we have any other details on this, but um, I guess thinking through the possibilities, one could be that you might be in a little bit of withdrawal. I know that sounds funny to say, but if we've been habituated to a certain way of eating and we're now going to a healthier way of eating, sometimes our bodies do react a, a little bit. That can happen. The other piece of this is that sometimes starting a new diet is a little bit awkward. Um, I eat this much steak, so I guess I better eat this much beans. Well, your digestive tract is not quite ready for that challenge yet. Um, so there's a little bit of a getting used to it phase. Um, but what you're very likely find is if you eat a healthy diet of grains and beans and vegetables and fruits, those four groups, don't forget your vitamin, vitamin B12, you need that too, um, that you're going to be feeling better very soon. Obviously, if you are sick, if you have a health issue, see your healthcare provider and see if there's something else going on. And if indulge me for a second, let me follow up from just uh, my personal experience with that. And you use the term, Dr. Barnard, you use the term withdrawal. And for me, that's exactly what it was when I was taking fast food out of my diet. It was by day two or day three that I would really start to feel like I was coming down with the with a healthy case. And I'm going to put healthy in quotes, healthy case of the flu. And um, it was it could be really difficult to overcome that. But in time, once that stuff does get out of your system and your body has time to adjust, your brain has time to adjust without those high fat, high salt foods, then you do start to feel better. So that's just my personal experience with it. And uh, I do hope that uh, things improve for you there, vegan in the city. Um, let's take a question, Dr. Barnard, from Stephanie. This is an important one. Stephanie is uh, transitioning to a plant-based diet, already seeing some results with their high blood pressure. And this question came in at 1157. So Stephanie is wondering at what point should she speak with her doctor about getting off of her medication? I would speak with your doctor right away. Um, and the reason for that is you're, it, it sounds like you're on blood pressure medicines and their job is, they have an important job. They're there to keep uh, hypertension from affecting your brain or your kidneys or your heart. You wanna keep your blood pressure in balance. However, you're also starting a healthier diet. And if you go to a completely vegan diet that's low in fat, which is what I would recommend for anybody, particularly a person with high blood pressure, your blood pressure is very likely to come down, both over the short run, um, because you're eating now a lot of high potassium foods, that's the vegetables and fruits, you're getting away from the 
the greasy stuff that makes your blood more viscous and pushes your blood pressure high. So your blood pressure can start dropping fairly quickly. And then over the long run, if you find that you're shedding excess weight or unwanted weight, your blood pressure will continue to come down. If you're doing that healthy blood pressure lowering diet and taking blood pressure lowering medicine, the way that can be experienced is you're sitting at your desk, you jump up to walk out of the room and suddenly you're really lightheaded because you don't have enough blood pressure. Your blood pressure is low. You are now hypotensive. Um, to prevent that from happening, talk to your caregiver and say, I'm really cleaning up my diet and I'd like you to monitor me. And your caregiver might say, check your blood pressure at home. And if it's below X number, uh, let me know and we'll see about backing you off your medicines. You want to back off your medicines. Same is true for people on medicines for their blood sugar for diabetes. Uh, this diet brings blood sugar down and you want to let your doctor know so that your doctor can bring you down on your medicines when the time comes. Don't throw your pills away. Don't cancel your doctor's appointment, but let you let your caregiver know that you're improving your diet and um, that your caregivers can help you to uh, back off on your medicines at the appropriate time. Here's an interesting question from Frank, came in at 1210. He's watching us today on YouTube. Uh, is there any way to cure lactose intolerance other than just not eating dairy? So lactose intolerance is not a disease. It's not something to be cured. Lactose intolerance is not only a completely normal condition, it is the norm for all mammals, um, including human beings. Here's what it means. Uh, biology 101, you're a baby. You've been born, your natural food comes out of your mother's breast. That's, that was mother nature's idea. Um, and when you are no longer a little baby and you can, um, you're grown up enough to, to feed yourself, um, and you can take solid food, at that point, the weaning process means you're not going to get milk anymore at all. And all mammals go through that. Um, they nurse from their mom and then they're weaned and they don't have milk anymore for the rest of their life. So there is a sugar in milk called lactose that is kind of indigestible, really. And so you have an enzyme in your digestive tract called lactase that snips it into two smaller sugars, you can absorb them, and that will give you good nutrition when you're a nursing baby. Um, and that enzyme goes away too. Um, after the age of weaning, it's gone. Um, you don't have it anymore. That was what nature thought. However, um, human beings are very restless, creative creatures, and we, we come up with all kinds of things that mother nature didn't think about, like ice cream. Um, and so dairying countries in Europe and probably in um, parts of Asia as well, um, started taking milk from cows and having it not for the cow's progeny, but for themselves as adults. And some of these people apparently had a selective advantage for keeping that enzyme, that lactase enzyme in their bodies longer. So those people could actually digest cow's milk, which nobody else could. And then apparently they were writing the nutrition books because they started to describe themselves as normal that it's a normal thing to, to, to drink cow's milk lifelong and have three glasses a day and you should be able to digest it. And if somebody else can't digest it, there's something wrong with them and it was called a disease. Um, it's just the opposite. All you have to do if you're having lactose intolerance symptoms is skip the dairy. If you have almond milk instead of cow's milk, it's not gonna upset your stomach. Or soy milk or rice milk or all these things are perfectly fine. There's no need for, for uh, cow's milk at all. 
right. Uh, we have a, a few more questions about kidney stones. I want to take this one from Fabi. It came in at 12.03. Fabi says, I've been vegan for seven years and passed a kidney stone last year. My doctor then told me to stop eating rice and spinach and bread. And then, Dr. Barnard, to piggyback on that, a number of people are also using the term or talking about oxalates in the chat. So I'm assuming that that's kind of where their doctor is coming from here. Uh, bread, bread and rice, I'm going to give a not guilty verdict too. With, with spinach, you get into the question of oxalate-containing uh, vegetables. There are a lot of them, and, and you named one. Um, but whether they are actually driving kidney stones is really another issue. They're, they're, they're often raised in this discussion, but when you look at the science of it, it's not entirely clear that they're really a big uh, contributor to it. Um, what I would do though, if you're following a vegan diet, that's great, but do not forget to also lower, lower sodium. That's good. If you're taking calcium supplements, take them with a meal, but frankly for you, you probably don't need a calcium supplement at all. Um, and don't forget to stay hydrated, um, very important. Out in San Francisco, the people who just re or the people behind the Impossible Burger are now getting ready to release or test, I should say, Impossible Chicken Nuggets. And so we have a question from Dan wants to know, can Impossible Burgers and soy chicken nuggets be part of a healthy diet? Um, you know, where, where they come into their their real their their best um, function is as sort of vegan methadone. What I mean is. Uh, a heroin addict says, I got to I got to shake this bad, bad habit. And they go to the clinic and they get methadone to transition them off. If you're going to Burger King and you're getting the, uh, the, the Whopper every day and you need to break your meat addiction, you can get the impossible Whopper. They'll sell it to you. It's marginally healthier than the other one. It doesn't have any cholesterol in it. It doesn't have any estrogens in it from the, the dairy. Um, so it's a better choice. As time goes on, though, you'll discover kind of like methadone, you don't want to stay on that forever either because the Impossible Burger can be in turn replaced by other burgers that are lower in fat. And that's going to be a good direction for you. But for the purpose of the Impossible Burger and burgers like it, they're not really designed for vegans. They're designed to lure meat eaters away. <laughs> that's their job. And they do it very well. We've got time for a couple of more questions. We have a few people wondering about vitamin D on a plant-based diet. Somebody's saying that their levels are a little bit low and they are now asking for advice. What would you suggest? You know, it's a funny thing. Almost everybody who gets tested, in, they go into the clinic, they always come out low. And we've often wondered, is there something wrong with the laboratory standards? Um, or is it just the fact that we're not accessing the normal source of vitamin D, which is the sunlight on your skin, and if you're indoors or if you're using a sunscreen, the ultraviolet rays can't make vitamin D, so people do get low. Um, food sources, pretty rare uh, when, it, when we're talking about actually getting vitamin D in food as opposed to sun, which is what nature wanted you to do. Um, so for people who are low, um, and particularly people who aren't getting regular sunlight, a vitamin D supplement makes plenty of sense, uh, about 2,000 international units a day is what you would want. Uh, D3 is the form that people talk about the most, but D2 will work too. And both are available in vegan forms. You'll see them online. All right. And last question comes to us from Dawn. What are prostaglandins and can a plant-based diet reduce the amount of them that the body is producing? Wow. What a great question. We could do a whole show on prostaglandins. <laughs> prostaglandins are, they're substances in your blood. 
Your body makes them. You didn't eat them. They, they, your body is making them. And they are part of various uh, chemical processes that your body needs to make. Um, but where you might have come up against prostaglandins without knowing it is any time that you hurt. Um, take menstrual pain, for example. Uh, a young woman has uh, bad cramps. One day every month, she's, it's hard to get to work. And she's taking ibuprofen or aspirin or something like that to try to knock out the pain. What ibuprofen does is it stops the action of prostaglandins that were made in the lining of her uterus. And um, all month long, the, the inner lining of her uterus has been expanding. And if she, um, when she arrives at that time of the month, and she's menstruating, the prostaglandins are released and they cause crampy pain, they make you feel terrible. They get into the bloodstream and they go to your brain and make you feel out of sorts. And, and they have many, many functions. Um, they mediate a lot of inflammatory processes and ibuprofen or aspirin will counteract their effects. Okay, however, we have also found that diet can counteract them as well. So let's say a woman has menstrual pain and she follows a low-fat vegan diet. No animal products, keep oils really, really, really low. What happens? As the month goes by, she has a little bit less estrogen. Her uterine lining doesn't thicken up so much. So at the end of the month, it doesn't have much uh, ability to make prostaglandins and you don't have any cramps. Don't take my word for it. If you have cramps, try a vegan diet, no animal products, and keep the oils, that means cooking oils, nuts, guacamole, Keep them out of your diet for the next two months. Do a good test and see if maybe those prostaglandins give you a reprieve. Don't forget to join us for the exam room live every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and on Facebook. It is your best chance to ask experts like Dr. Barnard your question. And you can also send in your questions ahead of time. Hit me up on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Chuck Carroll, WLC. And if you're hearing this show the day that it was released, that is September 9th, I would love it if you could join us for another special live event. This one is called Goodbye to Hot Flashes. Dr. Barnard and Lindsay Nixon from The Happy Herbivore and Betty McEwen we are all getting together beginning September 9th at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 o'clock Pacific time for this special one-hour live webinar. And there you're going to learn the science behind how a plant-based diet can alleviate troublesome menopause symptoms that are plaguing some 40 to 50 million women in the United States alone. So Dr. Barnard, he's going to be diving into his groundbreaking research on this. And we heard recently from a number of the women who participated in his study. It's called the WAVE study. And these women just raved about the extraordinary results they were experiencing with their hot flashes and reducing them. And then you'll also hear from Betty McEwen. And Betty is the woman who unknowingly put all the wheels in motion for this study. She changed up her diet, her hot flashes disappeared, and then she called up Dr. Barnard, all excited to tell him about it. And then the rest, as they say, is history. 
Plus, Lindsay Nixon, she's gonna have just some delicious, amazing, yummy recipes that were published in Dr. Barnard's book, Your Body in Balance. These recipes also will help to reduce the symptoms of menopause. And speaking of the event, when you register, you can also order an autographed copy of Your Body in Balance. Dr. Barnard, believe it or not, will sign it, maybe even right there during the event, and send it off to you. And you can register now, order that book at pcrm.org, or click the link in the show notes. That's pcrm.org, or find the link right in the show notes. And today's episode, I wanted to remind you one more time that it has been brought to you by the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. They are on an absolutely critical mission to continue the love and the passion that Greg Ryder had for animals. And today that fund is being used to support organizations that share that same passion and love that he had through animal rescue efforts and by promoting a vegan lifestyle and even wildlife conservation please visit GregoryRiderFund.org. That's Gregory, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org. And you can learn more about Greg's incredible story, as well as the animal issues that they are working to improve. Plus, while you're there, you can keep up with everything that they're doing by subscribing to their newsletter. And you can find a link to do all of that right now in the episode notes. And finally today... We need your help to help to make the world a healthier place. We want to help others. So let's get this potentially life-changing and even life-saving information to those who need it the most. Those who feel like nothing can ever change. They're, They're just trapped in this unhealthy body no matter what it is that they do. Or those who feel that because their parents had heart disease or their aunts and uncles or grandparents had heart disease or Alzheimer's or cancer, they are going to get it too. But what we know, what science has shown, what the research that we talk about on this show proves is that genes do not have to be your destiny. So let's help bring them that hope. Let's help bring them this information that can help them lead a healthier life. And one of the easiest ways that you can do that is just by subscribing to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever shows are available. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating and a nice review because each new subscription and five-star rating helps us climb a little bit higher in the rankings. And the higher we climb, the easier it becomes for people to find this information. So let's help them do just that. Just takes a second, hit that subscribe button and leave a five-star rating. And I want to thank you in advance. And for today, that's going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard for joining us and bestowing his wisdom. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.